Please turn with me to Micah chapter 6. I will admit that uh, having concluded that this would be an appropriate passage uh, to teach on uh, today, I did have some reservations given the fact that uh, Alex is preaching through this book and will, Lord willing, come to this text himself uh, before too long. Uh, But hopefully uh, it will be profitable, uh, this preaching as well as his, um, and hopefully it won't be completely uh, duplicative. I think it will uh, have a different flavor today. So my focus this morning is on Micah 6.8, but let me read from Micah 6, 1 through 9. Micah 6, 1 through 9. Let us hear God's word. Hear ye now what the Lord saith. Arise, contend thou before the mountains, and let the hills hear thy voice. Hear ye, O mountains, the Lord's controversy, and ye strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord hath a controversy with his people, And he will plead with Israel. O my people, what have I done unto thee? And wherein have I wearied thee? Testify against me. For I brought thee up out of the land of Egypt and redeemed thee out of the house of servants. And I sent before thee Moses and Aaron and Miriam. O my people, Remember now what Bala, king of Moab, consulted, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him from Sittim unto Gilgal, that ye may know the righteousness of the Lord? Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. The Lord's voice crieth unto the city, and the man of wisdom shall see thy name. Hear ye the rod, and who hath appointed it? Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. So Micah, having just pled with the heathen uh, in chapter 5, now comes to plead his case against the people of Israel. Clearly he has a case, a controversy with them, we see. He has a controversy with them uh, ecclesiastically or as a church, and he has a controversy with them nationally as a nation, as a people. They were a nation state, right? But they were also the people of God. He has a controversy with them. 
In verse 9, he says he's disciplined them, but they've not yet responded. They haven't heard the rod. He spanked them, and he's had to spank them harder and harder and harder, and they still have not responded to that spanking. But that spanking has not just come in physical form. It's also come through the voice of the prophets, particularly of Isaiah and Micah at this time. Right? We as fathers are told to chasten our children in the chastening and admonition of the Lord. Right? We don't just spank without bringing the word of God to bear. Right? The law and the gospel. Right? So God ordinarily uses that method with his people. He's speaking to them. He calls them to testify against them. The setting is like it's a courtroom. Okay, tell me what I've done wrong. You're wearied with me, God's saying. How have I wearied you? They're tired of serving God. Have you ever felt that way? Do you find yourself in that situation today? Wondering, oh Lord, I've served you so much. And yet you haven't been fair to me. You haven't given me all the blessings I've expected. Wonder if there wasn't a little bit of the health, wealth, prosperity gospel back then as well as today. I'm not getting all I expected. So it must be you, God. And even Paul could say in Galatians 6, 9, that we should not grow weary in well-doing. They were deceived. Do you see the parallel in Isaiah 5, 4? What What more could have been done for my vineyard? Have I not done it in it? Have I not done everything I could? God says. Am I really the problem here, or are you the problem? God's asking them. He reminds them of just a couple deliverances, their deliverance out of Egypt, certainly one of the largest deliverances and one that continues to gather force, and it's a metaphor that continues to be brought up throughout the Old Testament and New Testament as a picture. But then surprisingly another event, the the event of Balak, the king of Moab and Balaam, the son of Beor, and how God caused that curse to be a blessing to them. And then God's people speak in verses 6 and 7. And I believe they testify against him. Matthew Henry suggests that here God's people have a zeal, but yet it's without knowledge. Uh, To be quite honest, I love Matthew Henry, but I'm not quite convinced that their zeal was pure. It seems like they're questioning God. It seems like they're upping the ante. It seems like they're suggesting, well, following you so far hasn't been so profitable. What do you expect? You want to st-? And they're raising the bar themselves. They even suggest, maybe we should kill our firstborn for you. Is that going to please you, God? You see, I believe they've fallen into two primary errors. First, they think they're doing the deal all the time. And so, when they get chastened, they despise the chastened. Because they're unconvinced that they've sinned. But we sin daily in word, thought, and deed, don't we? And sometimes we sin in word, thought, and deed enough that God gives us a spanking. 
and we better not despise it. It's not always easy to discern between a spanking, spanking and getting pruned that we might grow more. Right? That, and I don't know that we could, I think we could spend way too much time trying to discern that at times. Right? But we know that that's how God works with us. So I think they fall and pray to that. They despise the chastening of the Lord. But I think also, I think they have fallen prey to the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. They think generally they're doing the deal, and they expected a lot more blessing than they're getting. And they're failing to see God's blessing and his love in the difficulties that are upon them. Whether those difficulties are from chastening or they're there for them to exercise faith and grow thereby. So they bear more fruit. But they expected more, and now they're pointing the finger at God. They failed to understand the method of God's grace uh, and how he grows the people of God individually and corporately. And so God, through Micah, reminds them of what's central, what's core in verse 8. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. On the surface, it might look like Micah is just telling them to follow the law. Just keep the law and you'll be okay. I'm going to show you that's not all this passage teaches when we get to it. But first, he said, he hath shown thee. In other words, in verse 9, the, the Lord's voice crieth. God's told you. Why are you arguing with him? Why are you trying to question him about what the requirements are? We're to buy without cost, without money. The gospel's free, but it is costly. But it doesn't cost us anything to have it. But there's a cost to pay, having been the recipient of it. It's a narrow way. It's a narrow gate into that narrow way. There will be trials. There will be persecution on that way. All hell will work against you on that way. Who hath showed thee, O man? We might have thought God would have said through Micah, O Israel. He's got a controversy with Israel. But what he's saying is the way is the same for the Jews and the Gentiles. What is good? What's good in itself, it's inherently good because it's consistent with who God is. Who is infinitely, eternally, and unchangeably good. But it's also good for us to follow God's commands. God's given us the owner's manual, how we should operate in this world. And if we follow it, we'll get the most benefit out of it, won't we? Staying on the tracks. Children, I've used this illustration with you before, but you know, how far, how fast or how far does a train go if it's off the tracks? Can it go anywhere? 
Can it perform its function? Of course not. The Bible's like that. When we stay on the tracks of God's word, we can head by his grace to the celestial city, our eternal home. But apart from following his word, we're not following him. It's also good for us. Think of Psalm 1911. And in keeping him, there is great reward. We're going to sing that at the end of the service. And what does the Lord require of thee? He's saying, these are the rules of my relationship with you. Do justly, love mercy. Keep the second table of the law. Walk humbly with me. In other words, sustain an intimate relationship with me by listening to me regarding who I am, who you are, and how this world that I've created is set up for you to live in. And then respond back to me in prayer and praise. It's that simple. Communion with God is communication. It's listening to him and responding back. Have you ever noticed in our worship service, That's what we do back and forth. We listen to him, we respond in praise. We listen to him, we respond in praise. We listen to him, we respond in prayer and praise. So here he gives us a summary of the first table. Second table first, it's the first table. It's the the last six commandments, then the first four. This is something parallel to... The summary of the law uh, that Jesus gives in Matthew 22, 37 uh, and following. It's parallel with Ecclesiastes 12, 13, where Solomon, uh, after saying pleasures and prosperity and popularity, uh, they didn't satisfy. The conclusion of the matter is fear God and keep his commandments. It's also parallel to Samuel's words to Saul in 1 Samuel 15. God had told Saul, destroy all the Amalekites and King Agag. And then Saul wasn't prepared to do it. Saul thought he got a better idea. Or at least he was willing to listen to the people who he was fearful of rather than God. And so Samuel says to to obey is better than sacrifice. He's not saying the sacrificial system didn't have its place and that they were to follow those rules. But he was saying is you didn't have an option to violate what I had told you to do to the king uh, and to the booty of the war to decide how you would worship. And he says you've rejected me and thus I'm going to reject you because you feared the people and you obeyed their voice rather than fearing me and obeying my voice. So let's dig in to these words. Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with our God. Do justly, what's that mean? I think first it means to not covet or steal a man's authority, life, spouse, property, or good name. I just just gave you the five through nine commandments. You're not to covet or to steal any of those things. That means you've got to watch carefully about how people present how wonderful their life is on Facebook 
and compare yourself and the struggles you go through and the wrinkles you have and the handicaps or whatever you have or the income you have, the car you have with them. And then take an opportunity. You may not be able to go steal their Maserati or their BMW, but you may say something a little bit about that person, right? Don't covet, don't steal. But also, it means that civilly, as a nation, we should desire as Christians to see our nation practice, I'm going to say it, vindictive and retributive justice. God's word is clear that civilly there is to be vindictive justice and there's to be retributive justice and remuneration and taking care when somebody's stolen from somebody, they need to pay back. They don't need to be set loose from that responsibility. But I want to focus on the third aspect of doing justly, to practice retributive and restorative, restorative Justice in the church. Right? That means you try to bring things back together to restore the person. When somebody has hurt someone, sinned against someone to a degree that it needs to be rectified, it may mean that they have to pay for what they've stolen or what they've broken, or they may have to do some radical things to clear up somebody's name that they have spoken against but it's all to restore the relationship horizontally and vertically. That's the goal. That's to do justly. It's not what we call social justice or what you hear called social justice today. Right? Social justice is based on a false view of man that suggests that man is inherently good. Therefore, all his problems ultimately come from broken systems, which again, the broken systems are from the elite who have created these broken systems, supposedly. We're not saying there aren't broken systems. We're not saying there aren't people that are taking advantage of the poor. Just go down to a poor neighborhood and see the gas prices there compared to the gas prices in your neighborhood. Just go into a grocery store, a five, you know, 7-Eleven in a poor neighborhood. Just go see the title company that's willing to buy people's titles from. It's not in your neighborhood generally. It's some other neighborhood, isn't it? Just look at the exorbitant fees that are paid on credit cards that take advantage of people's covetousness that want to buy more than they make and then leave them in poverty. We're not denying that in any way, shape, or form. And we want to see those improved, but the fact is, there are few true Christians engaged politically in our nation. There are plenty of false Christians involved in politics. You get involved in politics, you just realize how many people you thought were Christians aren't behaving like Christians. Somehow they think it's a different set of rules once they get involved in any kind of political arena. Somehow they think God's word doesn't apply in that arena, oftentimes. And you get to see who, what they're really made of. But that's what it's to do justly. 
it's to recognize those broken systems, but it's also to recognize that some people have made their choices, right? And they have chosen the place they have wound up in of their own sin, of their own failings. So we're to do justly. But the flip side, love mercy. Love mercy, that means to show compassion to those that are needy first. That means we can recognize the broken systems, we can do what we can in the place that we're called as what I call the church scattered. As individual Christians, you can be engaged in those things to try to rectify some of those things. It's not the calling of the church, it's not part of the Great Commission to be a political action committee. But that doesn't mean that we all can't be engaged in the civil sphere. It also means we recognize that poor decisions have been made by many in need. But we should remain empathetic and try to help them nonetheless. And it means we just shouldn't hand out money without trying to help them develop habits of thrift and of diligence, right? And of dependence upon God, asking for their daily bread. And then we can really be helping them, not just throwing them money, which might soothe our conscience, but isn't in fact helping the poor. It's really just enabling them in some of their sinful habits, often drugs and other things of that nature. Secondly, to love mercy, once you get this, it's a lot, is dealing appropriately when someone covets and steals your authority, life, spouse, property, or good name. When somebody violates the second table against you, do you love mercy? That doesn't mean you have to forgive someone that killed a loved one and hope they get off of the jail sentence. That's false mercy. You can still want them to get the death penalty because that's what the Lord requires for premeditated murder. But when somebody's done that to us, we can want justice and yet at the same time Love mercy. What would that look like? It would look like covering over the multitude of sins, as Peter calls us to do in 1 Peter 4, 8, quoting Proverbs 10, 12. We sin daily in word, thought, and deed, so we shouldn't be surprised that we sin daily against each other. I'll just tell you, husbands and wives, if you tried to rectify every sin that you committed against your wife and she committed against you in one day, you would never get to work the next day if you don't learn to cover some of those things. If you think you're going to hash all of those out every night before you go to bed, every little slight, every little word that came across a little funny, we've got to cover a lot. Cover the multitude of sin. Secondly, forgive someone who sinned against you When you're praying, I could say even before that, recognize that you're a sinful person 
And you might think they've sinned against you, and you may be wrong. So always remember, you may be wrong. That's a good thing to always remember. Because you may be wrong. We have a tendency to think we're always right, right? We've always discerned moral issues clearly. We've always understood people's motives and what they were doing and why they were doing it. Having remembered that we can be wrong, we're to forgive them when we pray. Mark eleven twenty five. And when ye stand praying, ooh, stand praying. There's a little bit there about posture in prayer. That's just one of the postures in prayer. It is the predominant posture. And you'll notice that's why we stand in prayer. Don't ever think if some church doesn't stand in prayer that they're not biblical just because the PRC doesn't do it, okay? Please don't think that. When ye stand praying, forgive. If ye have aught against any, that your, listen to the reason, that your Father also, which is in heaven, may forgive you your, your trespasses. I don't know how many times I've heard somebody say, I've seen it in writing recently, oh, it's so hard to forgive, it's going to take a long time. What? It's impossible to forgive. But with God, all things are possible. In our own strength, we wouldn't forgive anybody anything. We'd be just like those people that God uh, speaks of through Paul in Titus. We're haters and we're, be- we're hated. We, everybody hates us and we hate everybody. So forgive. From the heart, when you're praying. Now, lastly, confer forgiveness upon confession of sin. And obviously, that's if you've reproved them and they come confessing, or if you haven't. If you've just chosen, I'm not going to them, but I'm, I am forgiving them in my prayers. I'm, I'm asking God to help me to do that. And they come. Then you can confer forgiveness. Then you can tell them, I forgive you. Don't try to, don't try to convince somebody that they've sinned against you after they're unconvinced to say, well, I forgive you. That's probably just going to stir them up more, right? I forgive you for something they're not willing to acknowledge they've sinned against you. When they've acknowledged it, confer forgiveness. I want us to just think a little bit about Matthew 18. Matthew 18 opens up with Jesus talking about the little children that have been brought to him. He says, you've got to come into the kingdom like a little child. You've got to come with a degree of humility, just like you have to walk with God with humility. But he says there's going to be offenses that are going to come. Some of these little kids are going to get abused. Some young lambs in the church are going to be abused by wicked, false shepherds. Jesus says that's going to happen. And then he begins to speak of the parable of the good shepherd that goes after the lost sheep. 
Now he's talking about somebody that's been offended and is gone from the flock. And the true shepherd goes after that one and dangers himself to recover that one. He doesn't endanger the other 99. They're in the sheepfold. They're around the wall of stones. that somebody, the gatekeeper's watching. But he's out endangering himself to bring that one back. Following that, that's where Jesus enters into, if someone sinned against you, go to them. If they don't acknowledge it, then go get two other witnesses. If they don't acknowledge it, go tell it to the church, tell it to the leadership of the church. If it's that level, it needs to be brought to their attention. So in other words, going to your brother, going to get two, three witnesses is just like going out after the lost sheep. That's the picture. They're parallels. And then, what does Peter say after that? Well, how often do I have to forgive somebody? And Jesus says, seven times 70. Children, you know how much seven times 70 is? 490 times. That's a lot of forgiving someone who says, and it just says that they say, I've sinned. In Luke 17, 4, not a, par- not a completely parallel passage in terms of the event, but a parallel passage in terms of the same doctrines being taught. In Luke 17, Jesus says, you're going to have to forgive seven times in a day. If somebody comes to you seven times in a day saying, I repent, you're supposed to forgive them. Now, how much fruit of repentance can they show you after they said, I repent? Seven times in a day. Sixteen waking hours, maybe, times seven. You've got about two hours between, approximately, to demonstrate. So how long is it going to take to forgive somebody? If you're supposed to tell them, I forgive you, when they say, I've repented seven times in a day. Does it mean they've truly repented because you've forgiven them? Maybe, maybe not. It's really not your business, right? And then Jesus goes into the parable of the unforgiven servant. <laughs> that whole chapter, everything is tied together. And he says, you know, are you going to be like the unforgiven servant? You've been forgiven so much, and now somebody has a little debt on you, and you're going to put them in prison over it? Are you kidding? So confer forgiveness seven times possibly in a day. I think there's at least uh, one couple that's pretty new in the marriage business here. But a lot of us still need to learn this. We can sin against each other more than once a day, I promise you. (laughs) And sometimes you're not going to be able to see the fruits of repentance immediately but you believe, yes, they get it, and they really want to do better. But we have bosom sins. We have certain sins that we're going to go to the grave with. And and the Lord's working. He is working. He's continuing that good. But we're still going to sin against one another daily in word, thought, and deed. So do justly, love mercy. Next, walk humbly with your God. 
Remember how beautiful those pictures are of Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Hezekiah walking with the Lord? To walk with God means we have to agree with him. Amos 3.3, can two walk together except they be agreed? How long are you going to enjoy being with somebody on a journey if you don't agree with them? And the more we agree with God, the more we'll agree with one another. Want to create unity in a marriage? Study God's word and align yourself with his priorities. If your spouse is doing the same thing, you're going to grow closer together. Want to create unity in a congregation, in a presbytery, in the visible church throughout the world? Oh, that we all might take more seriously God's word. And then there'll be growing unity. But we're to walk humbly with our God. And quite literally in the Hebrew, we could read 6.8 to say, humble thyself to walk with God. In other words, it's parallel with blessed are the poor in spirit, Matthew 5.3, the first beatitude, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, this isn't just keeping the first four commandments. God, through Micah, is saying you've got to submit to God's way, which is the gospel as well as the law. It's the law and the gospel. So first, to walk humbly with God means to submit to the method of the relationship or the method of grace. It's a prerequisite to walking with God. You've got to enter the narrow gate before you can walk with God on the narrow way. Paul talks about the Jews in uh, Romans 9, 30 through 33, that they sought righteousness, but they sought it not by faith, but by works. In other words, they thought they had a better way to God than God told them the way to him was. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the light. No man comes to the Father but through me. And so that's the only way to the Father is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who's perfectly kept the law and yet underwent the curse that was due unto us. And so, and yet, at the same time, Paul could say to the church at Galatia, and I believe that's not one place, that's, that's a... It's a circular letter to a lot of the churches that he had planted in his first missionary journey. Some of them had fallen under uh, the persuasion of the Judaizers that had come from Jerusalem. And he says to them in 3.3, Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? In other words, he's telling us that's a temptation we can all fall into. Having been saved by grace, we can start trying to measure our sanctification by our external things and the things we begin to hold important. The Pharisees originally were a Reformation movement. And eventually, they became much more concerned with the outside of the cup than the inside. We can all fall into that trap so, so Easily. Does that mean the outside of the cup doesn't matter? I like a clean coffee cup inside and out. But I'm certainly more concerned about what's inside. 
If you've used it to store pens, and I look in there, and I can see you've left a few of your ink pens open at some, and there's that residue in there, I'm not going to pour some coffee in that cup this morning. It's not going to happen. But if there's some stains on the outside, I could live with it. That's what we have to watch. Submit to the method of grace or the method of the relationship. Secondly, yes, we have to submit to the law of the relationship or the law of God's grace. For years, I pastored in Charlotte, North Carolina. And for a time, there was a new church that had come around. And I think, I'm trying to think of the fellow's name, but oh, they had thousands of people coming. And in one sermon that became pretty popular, he said, God's not about rules, it's about relationship. And when I heard it, I said, no, that's heresy. The man and a lot of the leaders in that church, they came from a very fundamentalistic background. Rules, 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 rules. They became young adults, and man, it's not rules, it's relationships. How many of you wives would stay with your husbands if there were no rules in the relationship? Do you have some rules? Husbands, do you have some rules? Are those the guidelines, the parameters that safeguard the relationship? Of course. Well, God has those. Those family rules, those rules for us horizontal relationships are only based on the vertical relationship with God and his rules for us. But Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. We have to remember that. He's our righteousness. And yet out of thanksgiving for our great salvation, we ought to seek to keep the law. Independence upon the Spirit. Without me, Jesus says, we can do nothing. And you remember that. Thirdly, we need to not only submit to the method of grace and the law of grace, we need to submit to the providence of grace. Now we're back to the way the people of God in Israel were behaving towards God at the time of Micah. They had various trials, some of their own making and maybe some that God was pruning them and honing them for. They were not counting at all joy when they encountered what James says in the King James, divers' temptations, which would be better translated, I think, various trials, different kinds of struggles. They weren't counting it all joy. They were blaming God for those various trials. We should not do such. We need to submit to God's providence. We need to recognize that they are, what I would say, small letter means of grace. They're not the word, sacrament, prayer. But God uses the car accident, the illness, whatever, so that, he might ex- that we might exercise our faith and our faith muscle grow. It's also an opportunity for us to ask for greater effusions and influence of the Holy Spirit. Are we doing that? That's what it means to walk with God, to agree with him, to agree with the the way to get in and the way to walk 
the rules of the relationship, the Ten Commandments, and also to accept the troubles on the path while we're walking with God, while we're walking with one another. Right? In Pilgrim's Progress, the first part is about Pilgrim, right? Christian walking. Kind of set like he's by himself. There's a sense in the Christian life where you're on the walk, you're on the road yourself. It's you and God. Right? And regardless of who else and what else happens in your life, and even ones you love and think are believers may turn out not to be, you've got a unique relationship with God. But it's interesting how Bunyan doesn't stop there. The second part of the book, shorter part, but Christiana and her children, you have the picture of she's in a community. She's with a bunch of other people. She's got two pastors, maybe a pastor with two different perspectives, Mr. Valiant for Truth and Mr. Greatheart. She's in a community heading. God's in that community. God's in our community. God's in his church. And we need to walk around the bulwarks of the church. In Psalm 48, the end of that psalm, what it's telling the Jew to do is to walk around Jerusalem and see the towers and the bulwarks and say, wow, we are well defended. God is not going to let us fall. Where do we walk around the bulwarks? We study the word of God. Study the promises regarding what God has told us about our great salvation and his care and providence, protection over his people, the church. So what I want to tell you is this walk with God is the most pleasurable walk you can ever go on. But as I was thinking about it last night, thinking about all the beautiful hiking opportunities that are in this area, I was thinking it's like a good hike to a good hiker. For a good hiker, most pleasurable hike is steep. It's difficult. But what a vision you have on the hike. The beautiful vistas you get to see. It's pleasurable even though it's challenging. Just the way the Christian life is. It's very challenging. But oh, what beautiful things we see. The beauty of the Lord himself and his care for us as people. And that we reach the greatest peak ultimately. We've got the greatest destination. We've got the greatest companion on that hike. Lord God himself, see beautiful things all the way up to the peak. And we get to the peak, we're in the eternal house of God. We just have a foretaste of that here. And every so often we have a foretaste of the marriage supper of the Lamb and the Lord's Supper. But it's all just pictures of what awaits us. What a great hike we're on. A pleasurable hike hike we're on. There's only one thing needful to find rest. We've got to take Jesus' yoke, and it is light, but because he's meek and lowly. Let's remember our Savior as we consider walking humbly with our God. Let's close in prayer. Let's stand for prayer.